This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this criminal's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, rape, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Robin Hood, Batman, The Punisher, Mythic figures of vigilante justice who took the law into their own hands when the actual law failed them. Men who used violence to right the wrongs they saw every day. Most superheroes we admire today use some form of violence to enact change in their world. They've helped us draw a line in the sand between violence that is acceptable and violence that is not. Violence has been a problem and a solution throughout all of human history, a device used by the powerful and the powerless to protect themselves and to lash out against others. Of course, in the real world, violence in any context is a slippery slope. And so the question becomes, is violence ever justified? At what point does self-defense go too far? Is enough ever enough? When does the victim just become another oppressor? You might be surprised to learn that many of history's most successful vigilantes were women, though they haven't received the same level of global attention and acclaim as some of their male counterparts. Let's explore the life of Seema Parihar, an Indian woman who was kidnapped in 1983 in Uttar Pradesh, India as a young girl by ruthless bandits and despite enduring systematic torture and abuse, eventually grew up to become their leader. Hi, I'm Claire, and this is Female Criminals. Today, we're going to explore the twisted, tragic, and violent life of Seema Parihar. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. 
And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Seema Parihar was a powerful leader of a group of bandits. Please note, bandits are defined as outlaws in areas with less police or law enforcement. She operated in India from the 1980s through 2000 and has been linked to over 200 kidnappings and is currently awaiting trial on eight counts of murder, even though her kill count is believed to be as high as 70. Parihar is a figure of incredibly fascinating contradictions. Today, we're asking the question, was her life of crime among her bandit cohorts justified? Or is she simply a mass murderer and potential serial killer who got away with her crimes? We'll be exploring her childhood and rise to power within the Lalaram bandit crew, her life after she turned herself into the police, and her continuing rise in fame and political reach. Seema Parihar was born in January of 1970 and grew up in Uttar Pradesh, India, a northern state about the size of the United Kingdom. This single Indian state boasts a population of over 200 million. Imagine trying to squeeze two-thirds of the U.S. population into a state half the size of California. Uttar Pradesh is a complicated place. It has a long history of dacoity, or banditry. During the early 1980s, a wave of crime swept through the region. In 1982 alone, almost 100,000 major and minor crimes were attributed to bandits, including 2,300 murders. This inspired members of India's Congress to hire bandits, gangsters, and career criminals from their own caste to help them take care of criminals from other castes. Seems counterintuitive, but for a while in the 70s and 80s, it worked. Crime dipped, and the Congress began using these gangsters and bandits to do their political bidding as well. They even used criminal manhunts to exert control over the bandits. When the bandits were on the run, politicians would offer to call off their manhunts if the bandits agreed to intimidate voters in their favor. They would also release the bandits like hounds to steal money from voters for the politicians' campaigns. There was so much rampant corruption that it wasn't long until the bandits got wise to these congressional schemes and their leaders began running for Congress themselves. Using threats and money, these criminals actually succeeded in winning congressional seats. Then they used their political power to create monopolizing businesses in the region, allowing them to exert even more control. In some of India's larger cities and towns during the 80s, gangsters started taking over every facet of political and daily life for their citizens, becoming their voters' bosses, influencing police forces to turn the other cheek when it suited them, and even going so far as to take over schools and universities so they could freely recruit students into their gangs. Meanwhile, in the rural areas of Uttar Pradesh, Men and women who were tired of being pushed around, or who wanted their own piece of the action, 
formed their own bandit gangs. They began roaming the countryside, robbing cars and houses, and kidnapping for ransom. Many of the bandits in the region were lauded as Robin Hood heroes. Their intentions were good, or at least came from a desire to usurp their oppressors. They wanted freedom for themselves, for their families, and for their villages. They wanted to be allowed to make a living and keep what they earned, to raise a family and not worry about their children being kidnapped, and to be able to rely on the police for real protection. The bandit Mohar Singh once famously told an Indian newspaper, quote, as long as there is injustice, rebels will keep being born, end quote. However, at some point, that righteous spirit became corrupted, and the Robin Hood bandits started thieving, kidnapping, and murdering. The motivation changed. Injustice became commonplace. What started as a political uprising became a way of life, and more specifically, a way of making a living. And then, in a real-life Hollywood twist, more bandit gangs formed to defend against those gangs, resulting in six village massacres across an area half the size of California. Seema Parihar's family lived in a more rural area of the state in the 70s and early 80s, swaddled by two mighty rivers and jungle gorges perfect for bandits to use for cover. Her family herded cattle, and most of her childhood was spent grazing and keeping watch over the herd. Beyond that, details of who she was before she was kidnapped at the age of 13 in 1983 are shrouded in a sort of mythical fog, usually reserved for knights and saints. Much of what we know about the first 13 years of Parihar's life and how she was kidnapped come from her biographical Bollywood film. So it can be hard to distinguish fact from fiction. What we do know, though, from Parihar herself, is that in 1983, when she was just 13 years old, during a heated land dispute between her father and a wealthy group of local farmers, the wealthy group hired notorious bandit La La Ram to kidnap her from her bed in the middle of the night. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now let's continue the story. When 13-year-old Seema Parihar was kidnapped by Lala Ram and his gang of bandits in 1983, she was taken to a notoriously bandit-infested region of Uttar Pradesh called the Chambal. This area is commonly referred to today as the Indian Wild Wild West, and it's obvious why. Ravines of scorched reddish earth the thick jungle, and the wide river all make for a convenient hideout for bandit groups. However, locals use the river daily, bringing them to the doorstep of danger every time they clean their clothes, draw fresh water, or fish. 
It was here where the course of Parihar's life turned. A brief disclaimer, we're about to discuss sexual assault and abuse, so remember that listener discretion is advised. After her abduction in 1983, Seema Parihar was taken into the ravines of the Chambal, where bandit leader Lala Ram repeatedly raped her and then forced her to marry a bandit 22 years older than she was. We're going to start delving into the effects that this might have had on Seema Parihar and her psychology. So I just want to stress that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist. The National Institute of Health, as well as contributors to the Journal of Aggression, Maltreatment and Trauma, have found that while many victims of violence go on to live normal lives, violent events can often have a cascading effect on the lives of their victims. Not only are victims of violent crimes likely to commit crimes themselves later in life, but abuse of this kind often triggers coping mechanisms in the victim that make them more susceptible to abuse. Especially when the victim was being held captive with no hope of rescue. There's no mention in the literature about whether Parihar's family searched for her. But in either case, they never found her. She was never rescued. We must also remember that India is a very conservative country where the loss of virginity outside of marriage is considered dishonorable and shameful, even if the girl is raped. I got an insight and an understanding into the way he views women. And that is what is extremely shocking. Not what he did, but what he thinks that led him to do what he did. As recently as last year, an embarrassed Indian father brutally murdered his 13-year-old daughter by bashing her head into the wall and then burning her body, believing it would make his attack look more like a suicide. He told police he flew into a fit of rage when he learned his daughter had spoken with a boy that was not a member of her family. This is just one example of 5,000 so-called honor killings that occur each year worldwide, where women are killed by members of their family for dishonoring themselves and their family in some way. So the fact that within a few days or hours of her abduction, Seema Parehar had been raped by at least one bandit would have been stigmatizing for the young girl. Returning home with that shame may not have seemed like an option for her. The fear that her family would reject her or hurt her worse than her captors was a real possibility. UNICEF has done extensive research on families and societies that teach approval for the use of violence to handle certain situations, and how it leads to the perpetuation of that violence through generations. The problem comes when that violence becomes personal instead of theoretical. On a theoretical level, when it's happening to someone else, we can almost rationalize the violence. We judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. Exactly. But when it happens to you, suddenly the paradigm shifts. Parihar was tortured and hazed by Lala Ram's gang until, consciously or subconsciously, she saved herself by joining them. Instead of remaining a victim of the gang, she became a member. She found a way to survive, to cope with what she was experiencing. Parihar has said that no woman turns outlaw unless she was a victim of outlaws first. 
We like to think that those who fall in with groups like gangs or cults are in some way more vulnerable and susceptible to falling under the influence of these types of groups. But studies at Harvard, Yale, and Tufts universities have shown that the large majority of ex-gang and ex-cult members are as sane and rational as the rest of us. Gangs and criminal groups follow many of the basic steps that cult recruiters do when trying to woo new members. They target individuals during the most stressful periods of their lives when they're vulnerable to what the cult claims it can offer them. They identify what the individual wants or needs to feel secure, happy, and comforted. This might include emotional support, spiritual truth, or even just a hot meal. Cults then isolate the individual, keeping them from family and friends who might be able to point out the impact the cult is having on them. That does sound like how the Lala Ram gang treated Seema. Although the key difference seems to be that they both created the most stressful period of her life and then also offered a way for her to deal with it. Exactly. And when victims are surrounded by people who seem to have what they lack, they become more susceptible to the cult's message and want to be one of them. We're all driven by our deepest desires and needs. So the allure of finally getting what you want is intoxicating. Only when the individual is willing to commit themselves to the cause are they given access to the safety and security that comes with belonging to the group. And once someone joins, the threat of losing that safety and security is what pressures them to stay in the group. In Seema's case, she was expected to learn how to commit and carry out violent crimes. One study by a Queensland University researcher found that men are often motivated by jealousy, thrill, money, hate, and revenge. While research shows many women are primarily motivated by financial or personal gain or by love, women often target those close to them, their partners, ex-partners, and children. Crimes against strangers are far rarer. So it sounds like the fact that Parihar helped the gang raid homes and kidnap and murder strangers is fairly unusual. Not necessarily. Amazingly enough, there are at least 10 bandit gangs in India who are currently led by women, all of whom were once abducted by the gangs they now run. All of these women share a remarkable turning point in their lives. A single traumatic event as children led them into the care of an authority that abused them. Faced with the choice of remaining a victim or joining their abusers, they joined up. So in order to move on with her life, this gang of bandits became a second family for Parihar. Fueled by her instinct to survive and to rationalize the violence that had been done to her, she became one of the gang. At 13 years old, Parihar's identity was still fluid. Being part of the gang gave her a sense of identity that allowed her to survive the abuse she was experiencing at their hands. We see this often in victims of child abuse. When they lie to protect the person that hurt them or lie to stay with them when their guardian is accused of abuse, the Dana Foundation, which studied the connection between attachment and abuse in children, found that the need to bond with someone is so strong that once a bond is formed, it's difficult to break. After 13-year-old Parihar was forced to marry a bandit in 1983, 
She began living with the gang in the ravines surrounding the Chambal River, where they worked as highwaymen. Head bandit Lala Ram taught Parihar how to shoot a gun and brought her along as they looted houses. She won over members of the gang quickly and became a household name across stretches of India for her taste in foreign perfumes and for whistling film songs and scores while cleaning her gun. People started calling her the Bullet Queen. Parihar said that she was heavily inspired by the most famous female bandit of her region of India, the bandit queen Fulan Devi, who once massacred 22 men in a village who had taken turns raping her after killing her lover. Just like Seema Parihar, Fulan Devi's early years are shrouded in mystery, with the exception of the event that set her on the path to become a powerful, infamous bandit leader. So you can see how Parihar's relationship with violence shaped who she would become. Even as a young girl, a victim of assault who befriended her captors, she was looking for role models wherever she could find them. And she landed on a woman in very similar circumstances, who wielded violence as a weapon, not only to protect herself, but also to seek justice for the wrongs that had been done to her. In 1986, when she was only 16, Parihar married another bandit named Nirbay Gujar, but she quickly returned to Lala Ram. She remained with Lala Ram until he was killed during an encounter later that year. It was then that now 16-year-old Seema Parihar became leader of the Lala Ram gang. Under her leadership, the gang rose in notoriety and became more violent. They kidnapped and ransomed over 200 people from the Uttar Pradesh region. They also robbed 30 houses and stole from the wealthy to distribute among poorer villages who were under the wealthy's control. To some, she became a sort of Robin Hood figure, but like the rest of the bandit gangs in the Chambal, her motivations may have shifted during the 80s from justice to power. Famous retired bandit Raghbir Singh noticed the shift in motivation back in the early 80s. Back when he first became a bandit, he and most of his comrades had joined because they wanted revenge for one injustice or another. They claimed to never hurt women or the poor. The new bandits, he said, were different. They didn't care what they did. They targeted any vulnerable victim they could. Notice, of course, that he claims they never hurt women, and yet it was around this time that Seema Parihar and Fulan Devi were kidnapped, raped, and initiated into their respective bandit gangs. The social validation of being seen as a righteous vigilante obscured a darker side of the gang's nature of using their authority to selfish ends. It raises the question we asked at the beginning, at what point does the victim just become another oppressor? Seema Parihar was directly linked to at least 29 murders from 1986 through 2000, and many believe that number is as high as 70. It's curious to note that the research into female criminality overwhelmingly suggests that women use violence very specifically. Forensic psychologist Carrie Danes believes women are more driven by the result of murder rather than the killing itself. They get the job done, but that's where the violence stops. 
And that is where Seema Parihar becomes an unusual case. Parihar was notorious for her violence, especially against men. Whenever her gang kidnapped or captured a police officer, she had them stripped naked in public and tortured, even going so far as to mutilate their genitals. Perhaps this was her way of seeking justice for never being found after her abduction. Perhaps it was simply her way of coping with the horrific sexual mistreatment she had endured as part of the gang, of reclaiming control. To be clear, we are not condoning her actions by any stretch of the imagination. She is currently awaiting trial on eight murders, and even Parihar herself has admitted to using violence to get what she wanted while living as a bandit in the Lala Ram gang. However, to truly understand the nature of any human being, whether they're a criminal or not, you need to look at the events and influences that shaped them. More than that, if we ever hope to understand how children turn to a life of crime, we have to look for the triggers that set them on that path. We must examine how those events can rip open emotional and psychological wounds in people that fester and rot without access to proper mental health services. Though researchers have only begun to skim the surface, regarding the connection between child abuse and crime in later life, much of it suggests a direct link between past trauma and the trauma criminals later inflict on others. The Italian Society for Traumatic Stress Studies has found that sexual abuse, particularly in children and teenagers, can cause the victim to suffer from a lifelong form of post-traumatic stress disorder. People who suffer from lifelong PTSD try to reenact their early experiences of violence, either by putting themselves in the position to be abused again or by abusing others. Parihar seems to have done both. Becoming leader of her gang gave her the opportunity to regain control over her life and seek vigilante justice for the terrible mistreatment she endured. Police corruption was so bad in this area that cases often simply disappeared in the midst of group infighting and caste warfare. Police from one social caste may not have helped those of another. Some police have even been known to participate in kidnappings if the money is good enough. That level of corruption and impotence almost makes vigilante groups feel like a necessity. And if not a necessity, it almost guarantees that these vigilante groups will form. There was also a lot of evidence to show that these groups eventually became equally bad or worse than the gangs they were originally formed to fight. We've mentioned that Parihar was directly influenced by bandit queen Fulan Devi and led in Devi's image once she became leader of her own gang. Parihar and Devi both administered their own forms of vigilante justice. Women have risen up again and again throughout human history, often when they believed they had nothing left to lose. This is especially true in societies and times where women were disenfranchised, powerless, and marginalized, where kidnappings, raids, and rape were part of daily life. As is often the case, the distinction between whether someone's actions are justified comes down to the popularity of what they've done and what they claim to stand for. Seema Parihar seems to have become an impressive example of humanity's fickle, love-hate relationship with violence. 
As leader of her gang, Seema Parihar could have continued her reign of terror in the Uttar Pradesh region of India for the rest of her life. She would have probably died in a firefight like both of her husbands and Lala Ram, which is the way many Indian bandits have lost their lives. However, her criminal career eventually hit a surprising roadblock. At some point in the late 1980s, Parihar discovered she was pregnant. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to female criminals. Seema Parihar was still just a teenager when she felt the faint rumblings of a foot kicking inside of her in the late 1980s. After giving birth to her son, Sagar, Parihar decided to give him to her biological brother to raise, away from the madness of her life kidnapping and pillaging in the ravines of Chambal. Though we don't know how old the baby was when she gave him to her brother, we do know that Parihar did what she could to protect him from the lifestyle and influence of bandit life. It's interesting to note that Parihar apparently remained close with her brother after the kidnapping, though she didn't fully return to her family once she had joined up with the bandits. Research by the Australian Institute of Family Studies and the University of Ljubljana in Slovenia suggests that parents who have a history of childhood abuse, particularly mothers, often have a difficult time balancing authority and affection. They tend to punish their children more often and more harshly, expect too much from their children, and sometimes even force their children into a role reversal situation where the mother acts like a child, forcing the child to act like their parent. This, combined with growing up in this criminal environment and knowing no other type of life, would have set her son up to follow in her footsteps as leader of the gang. Parihar seems to have taken great pains to prevent that from happening. Not only was he raised by her brother, away from the bandits, she forbade any of the bandits from accompanying her on her trips to visit him. She visited her son frequently and doted over him when they were together. She protected her son, despite the atrocities of her crimes and the anger she felt towards men in general, she did everything she could to give him a normal life. Yet, she still returned to the gang and led them for another 14 years. Many of the murders, mutilations, and kidnappings she is famous for took place during this period in her life. From 1986 to 2000, Parihar ruled the ravines of the Chambal. She used their unique geographical protection to keep her safe when exchanging hostages for money and evading the police officers sent out to arrest her. On at least three separate occasions, Parihar even attacked police out in the open, humiliating and torturing them before slipping away uncaught. Like a predator, she stalked her prey by the roadsides or in towns and dragged them back to her den to have her way with them. Kidnappings earned riches beyond imagination for many bandits who had simply joined the gang to make a living and Parihar became infamous as a bandit leader. The police of this region believe that gangs that have female bandits are far more successful and survive for much longer than those that only contain men. The women, they say, act as financial managers for the group, 
deciding kidnapping targets, and how much to demand for ransom. The families of the kidnapped also trust the women to stay true to their word and return their family unharmed once the ransom is paid. Psychologist Marilyn Boltz published an article in the Journal of Language and Social Psychology stating that women are often seen as being more trustworthy, and this is true across cultures and continents. Even though, statistically, women and men lie about the same amount, there is a presumption and a social expectation that women lie to protect others, whereas men lie to assert their power or to make themselves look better. This difference in a ransom negotiation is crucial. It helped convince hundreds of families to pay a ransom that would bring the abducted back safe and intact. On Parihar's side, it probably helped her collect more ransoms with less bloodshed or threats of retaliation. She made good on her promises, and both parties went their separate ways. Money was rolling in for the bandits of the Lalaram gang. Perhaps her idiosyncrasies also helped explain how she remained in control of the Chambal region for so long. While she was kidnapping and looting houses, she was also waging an odd private war for the environment. Sometime during the 1990s, she once rounded up 150 farmers and herders who had been clear-cutting parts of the jungle and threw their tools in the river threatening them with more extreme action if she caught them cutting down green trees again. She believed that cutting down the trees was affecting monsoon season and causing unusual heat spells in Uttar Pradesh, a realistic concern when she not only used the jungle for cover, but to help her conduct her criminal activity. While the locals were never thrilled with the threat of violence, the fact that she had passion for the region and wanted to protect it gave her a bit of a folk hero reputation. The more interesting thing to consider, however, is the fact that this mass-murdering kidnapper didn't kill the men who cut down the forest she loved. It shows a psychologically interesting amount of control for someone we might easily dismiss as a violent, insane criminal. Many mass murderers, arsonists, and the like show a severe lack of impulse control in many areas of their lives. Parihar may have had her triggers, as we've discussed already, but she also knew when to pull back on the reins and use discretion. And she was still full of surprises. In 2000, Seema Parihar did something no one could have anticipated. For reasons no one, least of all her bandits, could understand, Parihar walked into a police station and surrendered to the police. Or, as Parihar describes it, she retired from a life of banditry. It was a clear attempt to dissociate from the almost two decades she spent among and leading the Lala Ram gang, what the National Institute of Mental Health would label a classic symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, where a sufferer starts to see their time of trauma almost like a bad dream or a movie. Parihar was jailed and charged with eight counts of murder, six counts of kidnapping, and 15 other lesser crimes. Her infamy as a violent bandit leader grew. But it was her symbolic position as a victimized vigilante that brought her lasting acclaim. 
like the bandit queen Fulan Devi before her, Seema Parihar marched out into the public eye to tell the world of her deeds and seemed to be completely at ease discussing her exploits, at least in general, non-incriminating ways. Bollywood director Krishna Mishra approached Parihar while she was still in jail to ask her if she wanted to work with him on a film about her life. Parihar was willing to do the movie, but made a few interesting requests. The first was that she wanted to play herself in the film. To pull this off, Mishra petitioned the courts to allow Parihar out on bail so that she could shoot with him on location in the Chambal ravines. I can't imagine a hotshot American director asking a court judge to release Al Capone to star in a movie. Mishra must have been persuasive. Not only was Parihar released to shoot the movie for him, but many of the extras and big characters in the film are portrayed by her old gang members. Filming the movie affected Parihar, who called reliving what happened to her as a young girl agonizing. It might also go part of the way toward explaining why she tried to dissociate from that life. In the ravines, among the bandits, everything that happened to her had become normal for her. But once people saw the film and saw what happened to her, she realized how traumatic the events really were, how abnormal her life had been to that point. Parihar became the first bandit in Bollywood history to play herself. And though the movie Wounded wasn't a huge success, it earned Parihar a lot of public credibility. There's also no proof that her new fame helped her avoid jail time for her crimes, but since the release of the film, 15 of her 29 charges have been dropped, and the courts have made slow work of bringing her to trial on the other 14 charges. Remember, she surrendered to police in 2000. That was 18 years ago. While the Indian court system is notoriously slow, it's not that slow. Since then, she's not only starred in the film about her life, but she spent time on the TV show Big Boss, the Indian equivalent of Celebrity Big Brother. She outlasted many of her castmates in the house, despite being far less well-known. Her success in the house was due in part to how straightforward she was. Though it probably didn't make her popular with the show's producers, the fact that she was so undramatic, that she didn't start fights or overreact, seemed to appeal to viewers. They saw her as a real person who had faced real challenges and come out the other end as a stronger person. Parihar's methods may have been violent, but here she was, a normal, functioning person, despite the things that had been done to her. And she had plans to go into politics, to make the world a safer place. For her son, for other women, for villages overwhelmed by corrupt authority figures who were only on your side so long as you could pay them. The question becomes, did Seema Parihar strike a chord with the Indian people because of her determination in the face of adversity? or because her infamy grew into celebrity, which they consumed like people consume celebrity in general? And does any of that erase the fact that she is an alleged mass murderer and kidnapper? One thing is certain, 
Parihar is one of many powerful and influential female figures on both sides of justice and revenge who have inspired women across India to stand up for themselves and each other. Two very large movements have taken shape to defend women against domestic violence, dowry killings, and sexual assault. The Red Brigade teaches young women self-defense and accompanies women through the streets for protection. These young women have stated that they don't want to wait for society to reform or for male attitudes to change. They can't wait for the police to arrive and act or for men to protect them. We can see a clear purpose behind the women's actions. Their actions fit the crimes they're fighting. There are five sitting MLAs in various state assemblies who have charges for rape pending against them. Meanwhile, the Gulabi Gang, also known internationally as the Pink Gang, numbers over 400,000 women who beat abusive husbands and rapists in the streets. The Pink Gang has been credited by the Indian government with starting a mini-revolution for women's rights. By the time she left the Big Boss house in 2010, Parihar had been approached by at least four political parties who wanted her to work for Indian parliament. This was an ambition Parihar believed suited her. Where other politicians could talk of corruption, she could give specific graphic examples. Where others could promise justice, she had carried it out with her own two hands, or so she would argue. But it seems that while several political parties and sections of the Indian government wanted her involved in their causes, they couldn't quite figure out where to use her. She's also made a habit of flipping from one political party to another very quickly, though she seems to prefer sticking to democratic and democratic socialist parties. This might be due in part to her exposure to different political ideologies after leaving the isolated bandit camps she suddenly discovered a feast of choices, so to speak. It might also have to do with the fact that while Seema Parihar has returned to the world a changed woman, she's still a wild card. She is still an unpredictable force to be reckoned with, a mother who shunned her life of banditry for a life of less violent public service. And she's someone whose identity is still fluid, even 18 years after surrendering herself to police, the Indian tabloids still watch Seema Parihar closely for signs that she might once again return to the Chambal ravines and pick up a gun. Thank you for tuning in with us this week as we explored the vigilante exploits of one of India's most famous female criminals, Seema Parihar. Such a fascinatingly complex woman. Definitely someone to watch as she moves forward with her political ambitions. Don't forget to subscribe to Female Criminals on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Female Criminals comes out every Wednesday. Please let us know what you think and join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at ParCast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. As always, we thank you for listening. 
Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson. 